Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20 is where we're going to be at today. Somebody mind reading verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there and into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. The bed, I think, needs about a... Here, take mine. No, no, no. Oh, not the Bible. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what are you reading normally in here? <laughs> All right, good job. Yeah, Abraham journeyed from there to the south, or to the Negev, or the Negev, depending on the translation that, uh, that you're reading. NIV has Negev. ESV has Negev. Uh, New King James Version, as an example, has the south. And dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. This land of the Negev, it's kind of a, an arid region. It's kind of a lower uh, region than where he's moving from. You remember that uh, the picture that we had of Abraham just before this was he was able to look down into that, into that valley where Sodom and Gomorrah ended up being destroyed. So now he's moving down into a lower land. This land is actually, like I said, pretty arid. It's about eight, uh, from what I understand, eight inches of rainfall a year, which would put it on par with Palmdale and Lancaster to give you a perspective of familiar places that we would know about. All right, so about the amount of rainfall that you would see in Palmdale and Lancaster. Typically, what we would find, you see a pattern as you're reading through Genesis. You end up finding that Abraham and then eventually his son Isaac and then eventually his son Jacob end up moving into this area, and it sounds like they're moving into this area in the winter times, all right, and then in the summers they end up going back into the hill country. All right, so this is an area that's going to uh, show up in a couple other places as we study through the book of Genesis. These other words here, these other places here, you have Kadesh and Shur. Kadesh and Shur. We've seen these before. You might not remember where we saw them. It was in chapter 16 when Hagar was fleeing from Abraham and Sarah. Remember when she was trying to get away? It sounded like maybe she was heading back to Egypt, and she ends up in this general region as well, specifically mentioning Kadesh and Shur in that account there in chapter 16, verse 7 and verse 14. And then you have the word Gerar there, the place of Gerar. Gerar, for a little bit of additional information on Gerar, I'd welcome you to turn to chapter 26. Somebody mind reading chapter 26, verse 1? No, I serve... Famine struck the land as had happened before in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Gerar, or... Abimelech? Thank you. All right. Where the Philippines lived. Excellent. King, king of the where? The Philippines? <laughs> I think you... <laughs> Philistines. There you go. Because <laughs> you're married to somebody from the Philippines, right? Sometimes we see what we want to see or what we're conditioned to see. Good job. <laughs> so here we find in Genesis chapter 26, verse 1, that you end up finding that Gerar ends up being Philistine territory. 
Okay? This is the territory of the Philistines. If you're not familiar who the Philistines are, you will be as you go through your Bible. The Philistines are going to be a prominent people group as you read through your Bible. So here we have, in verse 1, we have the mention of Gerar, and that's a city. It's a city of Philistine territory. All right? Moving on from there, how about verse 2? Somebody mind reading verse 2. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent it and took Sarah. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. Does this sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we feel like we've seen this before? We've got a prior here. We've got a prior here. <laughs> Excellent. Exactly right. Turn to chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 was the call of God on Abraham, right? This is where the call of God happens in the first half of that chapter. And then the second half of that chapter is Abraham ends up going to Egypt and says, she's my sister. And (laughs) Pharaoh takes Sarai at that time and uh, all kinds of problems arise out of that. And then Pharaoh finds out and he blames Abraham and kicks him out of the land after giving him lots of blessings to make him go away and hoping that Abraham's God won't judge him for the indiscretion and whatnot. Oh, yeah, we're going to see a repeat going on right now in where we're at. So turning back to where we're at, Genesis chapter 20 is going to be a repeat in a lot of sense or a lot of ways of what we saw over there in the second half of chapter 12. I don't want to suggest, though, that this is one in the same story. It's not. It's one in the same problem, but it's not one in the same story. It's a second account. It's a prior over in Genesis chapter 12. So, yeah, so Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. This doesn't indicate that Abimelech ends up having a conversation with Abraham about the identity of Sarah. It seems like there are envoys or there are messengers or there are representatives that find out about Sarah and they end up bringing report back to Abimelech. Okay, so it sounds like Abimelech is having this done through proxy. But at any rate, he ends up taking Sarah from Abraham. All right. Abraham, when he's saying, she is my sister, we saw how many problems that resulted in over in Genesis chapter 12. You would think he would learn something from that. You would think that maybe he would have come out of that situation and said, you know, I should have just trusted God. But that's that's not what we do either, is it? You see, in Genesis chapter 12, at the first half of that chapter, was God's initial call upon Abraham. All right. At that time, Abram. And so he was, if you will, young in the faith at that time. And we might want to give him a pass for being young in the faith. Because after all, when we become a new creature in Christ, when we give our lives to Christ, sometimes old habits and patterns and ways of living and ways of thinking and ways of rationalizing stick with us. Those things are kind of hard to kill off. But you would think by now that maybe those would have been put to bed, put to rest. But they're not. They're still showing up. And sometimes in our lives... I don't know how long you've been a Christian. Maybe it's been a month or a year or a decade or longer. But there's probably some things that perhaps you still struggle with. Maybe it's the ways that you speak. Maybe it's the ways that you think. Maybe it's the ways that you behave. Maybe there's something that still crops up every now and again. And you would think to yourself, why isn't this dead in my life? This should be dead. Romans chapter 6 says this kind of behavior should be dead in my life. And we end up seeing these things crop up again. Here it's cropping up again in Abraham's life. All right? Abimelech here, here's the first mention of Abimelech in this verse, chapter 20, verse 2. And Abimelech may be a proper name, but more likely it could be a positional title, okay? Like Pharaoh. There were several Pharaohs, 
But when you refer to him as Pharaoh, you know, he's the figure in the story, and that's what you call him. You call him Pharaoh. It could be Abimelech as something similar that they would appropriate in among the Gerarites or in the, among the Philistines. And the reason I say that is because you end up finding that Abimelech is used as a name for other people that you'll end up meeting throughout your reading of the Bible. And so it could be more likely that it's a throne name. All right. So presumably, Abimelech receives word about Sarah. There's something that, uh, I guess, attracts him to Sarah, and he ends up taking her. Uh, if you remember in Genesis chapter 12, in the story with Pharaoh, it was her beauty. Remember that? Yes. There's no mention of her beauty here. Um, don't know why. Maybe it's because she's 90 now. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the beauty part is not mentioned. So it could have something to do with her stateliness. I don't know. It could have something to do with this idea that you would form an alliance by taking a spouse or somebody into your harem from a visiting royalty or visiting uh, somebody that's a, uh, that seems to be important in the land and whatnot, and you could try to create an alliance that way. We're not given those details as to what it was. All right, so just realize that as we're looking through that, we don't know why he took Sarah but he ends up having Sarah brought to him. You remember, like I said, she's 90 years old now, and she, in fact, described herself in Genesis chapter 18 as worn out. So, I mean, it probably wasn't beauty by this point. Verse 3. Somebody mind reading verse 3? But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. John Hartley says of this passage here, God spoke directly to a Gentile king, demonstrating that though he was working primarily through Abraham, God was not silent to the rest of humanity. Did you notice that? He's having a dream. He's not a follower of God, but he's having a dream where God speaks to him. God has a way of making his voice heard, right? God is able to make his voice heard. You see, I've got on the board here, we're going to be filling in some of these. God is able to make himself be heard, all right? And you don't have to be a follower of God to have God speak to you. If you remember a classic example, the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, and he's on the road to Damascus, and bam, you know, bright light, and you know, he's knocked off his mount, and, and God speaks to him. And Nebuchadnezzar ends up having a thing where he's reduced to the state of an animal uh, because he resisted what God had said to him, and then he ends up being restored. So, yeah, you've got these weird situations where you've got people who are being spoken to by God, and you would think that they would be disqualified because they're not associated as closely with God as somebody else that you might expect to hear from God in a dream. Another thing, too, is uh, there are five people in the book of Genesis that end up receiving revelation from God in a dream. You have this situation here with Abimelech. You have Laban. He ends up having a dream. You have the Egyptian butler. You have the Egyptian baker over in chapter 40, and then you end up having Pharaoh in chapter 41. So these people all being spoken to by God through a dream. Another thing that you'll notice in here, in this verse, indeed you are a dead man. God is telling him, indeed you are a dead man. Why? Why is he facing death? What does it say there, according to that verse? Because the woman you have taken, she's a married woman. Because the woman you have taken is a married woman. Marriage is precious in God's sight. And God is telling Abimelech, you've taken a married woman. <laughs> You're dead. <laughs> You would wonder what he's going to say to this. We're going to end up getting to what he's going to say to this. Uh, verse 4, somebody might reading that. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Excellent. Thank you, Esther. That word that's translated near, there where it says had not come near her, it's often used in connection with uh, coming near sexually, having sexual relations. Okay, So he's indicating, God, I, I haven't slept with her. Wait a minute. Hold on. 
You know, and then what does he say? He doesn't say, Lord, would you slay me for that, right? He doesn't say, slay me. What does he say? Would you destroy an innocent nation? Would you destroy an innocent nation? He recognizes that, oh, you know, if this is true, this could make my whole nation culpable. Do you see that? Remember how we studied last time, and one of the things that we recognized in the last two studies was that a small remnant of righteous can actually withhold the judgment of God on a greater population of wickedness. Remember how we looked at that? The contrast to that, or the opposite of that, is what you end up seeing here. That some individual sin can actually incur judgment of God on a larger group. Right? So you're seeing, he's recognizing, he's, whoa, you know, if this... If I'm really guilty of what you think I'm guilty of, you know, are you going to kill my whole nation? He recognizes that the whole nation could end up being culpable for such a sin as that. Adultery ends up being outside the Bible attested to as something that's a great sin. And it's actually mentioned and has been found in marriage contracts from Ugarit and Egypt as being a great sin. So he's trying to say, whoa, whoa, you're accusing me of adultery. I haven't slept with her. Would you kill my whole nation for something I didn't do? It's kind of what he's saying. All right. Verse 5, somebody mind reading that one. Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Excellent. Thank you, Bianca. I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Or the New King James Version says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands have I done this. So he's trying to make his case before God. Mm-hmm. He's trying to say, hey, I didn't do anything. I didn't do what you're accusing me of. I'm innocent of that. Okay, And it's as if he's recognizing that what he's being accused of, that adultery is a line that he wouldn't even cross. He's saying, I haven't done that. I wouldn't do that. If I had known he was married to her and she was married to him, I wouldn't. I haven't crossed that line is kind of what he's saying. Verse 6, somebody mind reading that one? Yes, I know you are innocent, God replied. That is why I kept you from sinning against me. I did not let you touch her. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Key point number three up here, God is able to know our heart. God is able to know our heart. Sometimes we do things and we know it looks good, but we also know in our heart we're doing them for the wrong motive. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we do things and it looks bad, but we know in our heart we did it with the right motive, right? And we wish there was somebody that could see our heart in those situations. And here is a situation where God is assuring Abimelech, I know in your heart that you didn't do this intentionally, right? And we can take pleasure in knowing that God sees our heart in those times when we're living right. But we should also take warning for those times that we're living wrong, where we've got evil in our heart, recognizing God knows just as readily in those times as, as he knows in the good times. All right. So God sees our heart. God knows the intentions of our heart. God knows the motives of our heart. The other thing that we see here from this verse, key point number four, adultery is sin against God. Adultery is sin against God. So what does it say there? I have kept you from sinning against me. What was the sin that he was concerned that he had crossed? Adultery. And God's saying, I see your heart. I know you haven't committed adultery against me. I have kept you from doing that. I've kept you from committing sin against me. What sin? Adultery. I've kept you from committing adultery against me. If you remember this, the story of David and Bathsheba, right? David and Bathsheba. And he ends up getting caught, right? David ends up getting caught. And there's that wonderful psalm, Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, you would think, you would think if you're writing Psalm 51, if you're King David and you've been caught having an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and having killed Uriah, you would think you would write in that psalm, oh, I've sinned against Uriah. Right? But he doesn't. In Psalm 51.4, he says to God, you alone have I 
sinned against. And, and I read that verse and I go, no, not you alone. <laughs> You've sinned against Uriah and against God. But when it comes down to it, a sin against somebody else in the form of adultery is a sin against God. Marriage is so precious to God that committing adultery is a sin against God more than a sin against the wronged party. And that's kind of hard for us to grasp, but that seems to be what this passage supports as well. I have withheld you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Here's another thing too. God is able to keep us from sinning? Oh, I love that. (laughs) Right? Does he keep us from sinning? He can, clearly. But does he? He did here. But we have free choice. So God can intervene, but he doesn't always intervene, right? He did intervene here, but he doesn't always step in and keep you from sinning. Otherwise, we wouldn't sin. There would be no sin. And John, in writing the letter for John, says if we claim to be without sin, we lie. We deceive ourselves. Sin is something that we wrestle with through this life. So he can step in and intervene, but I would propose to you that that would be an exception. That would be exceptional rather than the rule in our lives. So he can step in and intervene, but we do have free choice. And he allows us to make choices, the rule being we make choices. And sometimes those choices are sinful choices. How about verse 7? Somebody might read that one. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. This is actually the first mention of the word prophet in our Bible. First mention of the word prophet. And of all the things you would think would be associated with being a prophet, here God lists one thing. He's going to pray for you. He's a prophet, and he's going to pray for you. You know, I think of a prophet as somebody who proclaims loudly and tells you how it is and says, you're going to hell unless you change your mind, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I picture. And I picture him doing weird stuff. You read through Isaiah and you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah and you read these weird stories and weird behaviors that they engage in and these are supposed to serve as pictures of a message that they're trying to give. They're just weird, wild people. They just speak out loud and here it's prayer. They pray, they intercede. And we saw Abraham was an interceder. And Moses was a prophet. We, we have interceding as one of the main things that we saw in that Sodom and Gomorrah story. Abraham was willing to intercede. And here, God is saying to Abimelech, he's a prophet and he's going to pray. He's going to intercede. He's going to pray on behalf of you to me. All right? He's going to pray and then what? And you shall live. It sounds like maybe he's already been inflicted with something. Maybe he's already got a fatal disease. That's what some of the commentators say. But if you do not restore her, his main concern is the restoration of Sarah to Abraham. If you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die. Period? No, not period. What does it say there? What's the rest of it? Your entire household will die. Ooh. That's my word. And all who are yours. And all who are yours, your entire household. Sometimes our choices have ramifications that affect others, right? Sometimes we think, oh, this this is just my area of indiscretion, when in fact it turns out it affects a larger group, right? It turns out it affects a bigger body, right? By the way, with him being a prophet, this kind of reminds me of 1 Chronicles 16, 22, where God says, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So key point number five here, an individual's sin invites judgment upon the group. An individual's sin invites judgment upon the group. 
So God's saying, I'll kill you and your whole household. For an individual sin, the group is going to face punishment. Ugh. Woe to you if you're in the group that's going to get punished, right? If God sends judgment upon this nation, we might get caught up in the group that gets judged. Even though the rest of his house didn't do anything wrong. We have no indication that they should bear any of the guilt. Oh, awkward. Okay, next. <laughs> verse 8. Somebody might read verse 8. Abimelech got up early the next morning and hastily called a meeting of all his servants. When he told them what had happened, great fear swept through the crowd. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. Great fear? Who are they afraid of? God. They're afraid of God, right? Yep. They're afraid of this God of Abraham who appeared to their ruler, to their leader, in a dream. They took dreams seriously, you can tell. They took dreams seriously back then. But this is a God they don't worship. All they know is it's a God stepping in, into this dream, in defense of Abraham. It's Abraham's God. They're fearing God. There's a fear of God that's happening right now in this group. All right? I wonder if the episode of what happened to the cities in the plain with Sodom and Gomorrah, if news has traveled, this isn't so far away that they wouldn't have heard by then. But I wonder if they associated the God who overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah as the same God of appearing in this dream, the God of Abraham. If so, ooh, you know what? That wasn't just bad pizza the night before. Let's take this dream seriously. <laughs> All right? Verse 9, would somebody mind reading verse 9? Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such a great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. Great guilt. Great guilt. Anybody else have a different translation? Great sin. Great sin. Great guilt or great sin. This phrase here, I mentioned that uh, adultery is mentioned in marriage contracts from Ugarit and Egypt. They use it, this exact wording, great guilt and great sin, as being synonymous with adultery. All right? Great guilt and great sin. Victor P. Hamilton says, If a city can be saved by the presence of ten virtuous people, an empire can be dismantled by the actions of one guilty person. Verse 10, somebody might reading that one. When Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? Excellent. Thank you, Levet. You got King James Version over there, don't you? <laughs> For those of us that don't speak okay. King James English. <laughs> there we go. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Excellent. Thank you. So do you get the picture here? Abimelech is chastising Abraham. Abimelech, this pagan king is rebuking Abraham, the follower of God, the hero of the faith, right? It's interesting here, the Jewish study Bible says regarding this passage, the image of a Gentile king righteously upbraiding an Israelite prophet for the latter's moral failures is a fine comic inversion of our expectations. We don't expect to see this in the Bible. You expect that the good guys are always good and the bad guys are always bad. And here we've got the opposite of what we would expect. Verse 11, somebody might read that. Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Excellent. Thank you, Claudia. So here in verse 11, what is Abraham's concern as he's describing it? What was his concern initially? They don't fear God. Yeah, they don't fear God. What did we learn about in verse 8? They fear God. <laughs> right? His concern, Abraham's concern as he's describing it here, would you say it falls into the category of fear of man? 
Abraham is fearing what mankind is going to be doing to him, right? Abraham is afraid of man, and he's claiming it's because they don't fear God, yet we find out he misappraised their perspective, right? They do fear God in this sense. They heard from him, and they recognize this is, this is some deity that has claim on us. <laughs> you know, We trust and believe that this deity has authority and power over us. So he missed that. He misjudged them, and he fell into a trap. He fell into a snare of his own making, and that is fearing of man. The fearing of man, or the fearing of mankind. Number six up here. Fear of mankind is a snare. Fear of mankind is a snare. That's actually out of the Bible. Proverbs 29.25. Proverbs 29.25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. One of the things that you also see here, what is his fear? His fear is that they will kill him and take his wife. All right. That sounds weird. That sounds unreasonable. That sounds like something you wouldn't expect to happen. Except with this. Adultery was a line you don't cross. Even Abimelech is subscribing to that. All right? He's subscribing to, yeah, you're not going to commit adultery, so what do you do? If you really want the woman, you kill the husband. Because then you don't have adultery. You get to take her. So his concern, knowing that that maybe is the practice in the culture, his concern is, I tell you what, when we go to places, if they think you're beautiful, they're going to kill me to take you. So here, let's do this. Let's make this arrangement. Say you're my sister, then they won't kill me. They'll let me live. All right? And we'll see that more in verse 12. Somebody might read it that. But indeed, she's truly my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Okay, this is weird, right? <laughs> this is information we didn't have before. Abraham was introduced to us at the very end of chapter 11. The very end of chapter 11 ends up giving a little family tree for Abraham. And we have names, and we have some associations. We didn't see this connection with half-sister Sarah becoming wife. That wasn't over there. So this is new information to us. By the way, sister could mean, this is the way it's used in Genesis. In Genesis, you could have the same word that's being translated here as sister. Number one, could have same parents. Number two, a parent in common. Number three, a female relative, or in a broader category, number four, a woman of the same country. So the same word is used applying to those four different scenarios or four different situations. But here he describes for us exactly how it is. They have one father in common, but they have different mothers. That was something that we didn't expect to see. We didn't see it before. We weren't prepared for that. All right. By the way, this relationship that they have, right, marrying your half-sister, it ends up becoming, by the time we get to the time of the giving of the law, this is a relationship that would have been inappropriate. All right, But you do find, as you're reading through your Bibles, especially through the book of Genesis here, you end up finding marriage within the family or to somewhat close relatives. Uh, you have Nahor. Later on, we're going to find out he marries his niece, Milka. You end up having Isaac marrying Rebekah, his second cousin. You have Jacob marrying Leah and Rachel, both of which were cousins to him. So you end up having these close relationships, uh, marriage within families. And part of the idea was that it would end up preserving the religious customs of your family, in a sense. All right. So whatever the justification, I'm not trying to justify it. I'm just saying recognize that this is not completely out of the norm from what we see from other characters in the Bible. All right. Verse 13, somebody might reading that one. And when God had had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So Abraham is still talking to Abimelech. And it sounds like the agreement that was made way back then was, Hey, anytime it comes up, right? 
anytime it's appropriate, let's play this card. All right. Saying, don't take it personal. <laughs> don't take it personal, right? So he's telling Abimelech information we didn't know. We didn't know when that arrangement was made. We thought it had to do with going down to Egypt once he had already arrived in the land. Now we're finding out it started even earlier and that he made the arrangement with his wife Sarah at that time saying, hey, I expect that you know there could be trouble and anywhere that it sounds like it could be trouble, let's, let's do this you know charade thing. Somebody mind reading verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Excellent. Thank you, Levet. So here we have Abimelech is giving gifts. Remember how Pharaoh gave gifts. Remember when they were down in that last time in chapter 12? This was the same kind of thing that ended up happening down there. Pharaoh, though, he was a little more upset. It kind of sounded like it was kind of like take your gifts and get out, you know? Uh, here, Abimelech ends up giving him gifts, but we'll find out there's some more parting gifts, if you will. All right, but he gives gifts, and he's probably figuring out that he's culpable somewhat, too. I mean, even if he didn't know that Sarah was this person's wife, even if Abimelech didn't do that on purpose, right, there was still some things he could have done differently. He could have inquired better as to the actual relationship they had, and he could have asked for permission, <laughs> you know, <laughs> instead of just taking her. Yeah. So maybe he felt himself a little bit culpable, or maybe he's trying to buy off the God of Abraham, who's already threatened to kill him, and he's trying to get out of that. That's a possibility, too. All right. So in addition to the parting gifts of male and female servants, sheep and oxen, what does verse 15 tell us? And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. And so here we have the additional extension of, of a gift of land if he wants some land. And like I said, if, if they're traveling down to this area in the winters and they're going back in the summers, having a vacation plot of land might be beneficial, you know. So uh, verse 16, still more gifts he's giving. What does verse 16 say? Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. He ends up making a, a comment there. Behold, I have given... Your husband, is that what it says? A thousand pieces of it? Oh, it's your brother, right? It's a little last jab right there, <laughs> right? He could have said your husband, but no, it's again, it's your brother. Sure, it's your brother. thousand pieces of silver, is that a lot? Is that a lot? It is. It actually is. If you read through your Bible and you look at other places where it has some mention of the different amounts, you end up finding out that a slave was worth 20 pieces of silver. All right, so a thousand is quite a bit more than a slave. You end up finding out that a piece of land can be bought for a hundred in Shechem over in chapter 33. So this is 10 times what would buy a piece of land. And then you end up finding out that uh, you can buy a cave in Machpelah for 400 pieces. And this is a thousand, all right, of silver. All right. So yeah, it's a substantial gift. It's a lot of money that he has given him. You also find here that the word there that's rebuked, the very last word of verse 16, Esther's got rebuked. She's reading New King James Version. NIV has vindicated all right, vindicated. So this is actually a legal term. You would find this in legal documents outside the Bible, basically saying, Abimelech is saying, legally, we're done. The debt is made whole, and everything's good, and thank you very much. All right. Verse 17, somebody mind reading that one? And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so they could have children again. Oh, that's interesting, right? So, so God healed Abimelech, so he did have something going on all right but not just abimelech who else does he heal his wife he's got a wife sorry <laughs> sorry <laughs> so he's already got a wife he didn't need sarah anyway but he wanted sarah for the harem i guess all right so he healed abimelech he healed his wife and who else did he heal 
His female servants. So all of these have been afflicted in some fashion. What does it say in the next verse? What kind of fashion were they <laughs> afflicted with? So, the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. For the Lord had closed up all their wounds. So they couldn't have children. Wow. <laughs> uh, the next point that I've got up here is God has power over our body. God has power over our body. These people that were healed, the story seems to read in such a way that they were afflicted by God and then healed by God. God can afflict your body and God can heal your body. God has the power to do that. It's not just infertility. We're talking infertility and fertility here specifically in this verse. But I propose to you, God's not limited to just dealing with the area of fertility in our bodies. We've prayed for people in this room. We've prayed for healings and seen healings. God can do that kind of stuff. But like I asked earlier, does he? Sometimes he does. And sometimes he doesn't. Because think of Sarah all along. She's been barren. She hasn't been able to bear children. The Lord healed them of the same thing that Sarah has been afflicted by all along. Abraham prays for them, and they got healed. But his own wife, the promise is through her, and she's never been healed. He doesn't always heal when we ask. And it hurts even more that it's that close of a relationship. Right? I'm thinking if you're Abraham and you're praying for these other people that don't deserve it in your mind, and they get the healing... How about my beautiful bride, who I've been praying for every night? And she hasn't been healed. Sometimes God does his own thing, and we don't know why. And we're left with emotions that are stirred up and going, they don't deserve it. We should trust that there is a reason. The Bible teaches us that his ways are so much higher than our ways. They're beyond finding out. We're not going to be able to understand sometimes. And it comes down to this. Do you trust God or not? Are you going to follow him even despite not getting that prayer you were hoping for? Right? How much are you willing to be in for God? Are you willing to be in for God all in? Whether you get that answered prayer or not? Because that's a test that we are presented with every day. Are you going to trust me today? You wake up every day. That says, you're going to trust me today? Yes. You're going to trust me even if you still can't have kids? Okay, all right. You're going to trust me even if your wife is going to stay barren? Okay, all right, I trust you. We need to have a faith that trusts God even when we don't understand, even when we have the bad along with the good. Because God's character is to take us through test A, right, and see us through, and then we're more prepared for test B, which is a little more difficult, right? And then see us through, and then now we're ready for test C, and it's a little more difficult. I mean, I love succeeding on the test, but I... <laughs> All right, so our key points for the day, and try to keep my promise to get me out on time. Key points up here. Number one, God is able to make himself be heard. We saw that in the dream. He appears in the dream to Abimelech. Somebody you wouldn't expect he'd be hearing from God, but God has his way of making himself be heard. Number two, marriage is precious in God's sight. He's willing to say, you're going to die because you, you took his wife. <laughs> All right. Number three, God is able to know our heart. He's able to know our heart. Abimelech appeals to him. Oh, God, you know, wait, what? I didn't do that. God says, yeah, I know. I know your heart. 
Number four, adultery is a sin against God. Even David to help uh, drive that home for us. I have sinned against you and you alone have I sinned. Number five, an individual's sin invites judgment upon the group. Abimelech says, would you destroy the nation also? And God says, and if you don't do this, if you don't return the wife, you and all of yours are going to be killed. (laughs) So the sin of the individual has ramifications for the bigger group. Number six, fear of mankind is a snare. That's right out of Proverbs 29, 25 was the reference I gave for that one. And then number seven, God has power over our body. God has power over our body. All right, let's close in prayer. Somebody mind closing this out in prayer? Okay, thank you, Claudia. Our wonderful Father, we are so thankful to be here together in your name, looking to the one and only who takes care of us, who, like we mentioned earlier, provides so many blessings to us without deserving not even one of them. We thank you for bringing so many lessons as reminders, key points in our lives, and the most beautiful one, the that relationship you want to have with us as our groom and me as your bride. Keep us clean, keep us holy, keep us ready until the day that we meet you eye to eye again. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. 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 All right. You guys have a great week.